Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. We are excited to be joined on the podcast today by Scott Rupp, founding general partner of Bitcraft Ventures, a leading early stage investment platform for gaming, esports, interactive media, and crypto with over 600 million of assets under management. Scott has a ton of different experiences across the gaming and entertainment industries with stints at Modern Times Group, Icebox, Digital Artists, Gazillion, and McKinsey. He is a gaming, esports, and Web3 guru. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be with you guys. Thank you for the invite. Well, you've got a really interesting background. Would love to hear a little bit about how you came to become a leading VC in the world of gaming. Careful what you wish for. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I had a, a kind of through line through my career around media and entertainment and a lot of different roles. So that's been the common theme. Uh, done a lot of different roles in the space across startups and investing in big companies. But I would say the last, I was at McKinsey, uh, dare I say, back in like 2004. And a lot of the work I was doing there, I was kind of a media and entertainment specialist. I'd been in that space for quite some time before I got there. And at the time, the topics on a lot of clients' minds were related to digital growth and things that were not ad-based. And so I spent a lot of time looking at games. And I got super deep into online games at the time. This was when World of Warcraft was like blowing up as a product. It was the first billion dollar a year subscription business, which nobody had ever heard of. It was very eye opening. You had crazy stories in the New York Times about like Second Life and some very successful companies listing from Asia and the US uh, capital market. So I went super deep down the game rabbit hole, got to know a lot of the founders in that world, um, had been doing some startup things before that chapter. And uh, so, I, so I quit and joined a startup in online gaming in 2008. That's what brought me out to California. Kind of been in uh, online gaming ever since and was uh, the US CEO for a European media company called Modern Times Group. And mostly what I was doing there was buying game companies and esports companies. But one of the things we did was create a venture fund that was strategically motivated to have a lens on change in these spaces and kind of build up a pipeline of relationships and opportunities and became very active early stage investor in games uh, through that platform. And that uh, ultimately led to creating Bitcraft with a couple of partners. So, so here I am. Great. And, and when did you guys launch Bitcraft? We, uh, my partner Jens did a first kind of solo GP fund under the Bitcraft flag in 2016. I, I believe it was very small very early esports only. Uh, I had acquired Jens's prior business called ESL at MTG. ESL is the biggest esports company globally. They do all these kind of pro tournaments and produce tons of content. So we owned ESL as an operating company and wanted some visibility in how esports was going to change. I took uh, the biggest LP position in that very first fund, got to know Jens that way. And then he and I and our third partner, Malta, teamed up in 2018 to do a fund uh, together. So that's when we started to work together as, as a threesome. We're now at a point where we have about 800 million under management across five funds, three different strategies, essentially early stage, early growth and crypto. 
Scott, you know, I understand you're relatively new to the Colorado ecosystem. You moved here 18 months ago or so. Would love to hear what attracted you to Colorado. Yeah, I, you know, COVID was a great gift for uh, for our family in that it really opened up the aperture on, on where we could live. I had a lot of flexibility. My wife is very active in the impact investing world and her business was a little bit more kind of client and office centric and she was kind of narrower in where she could she could live and work. But that all uh, changed. You know, we had been in the Bay Area for about 13 years. We were ready for something new. And all of a sudden, we could go anywhere. Uh, and so we did a pretty kind of exhaustive search. We looked at Austin and going back to the East Coast and other parts of California and the Northwest. And we ran it through the life optimization algorithm, you know, and Denver came out on top. We had we had no sort of silver, silver bullets from a family perspective. My wife is uh, French and her family's all in Europe. So there wasn't a, a, a great place that would kind of overweight family. But with Denver, you know, we're all VCs here on the call, right? That means we like things that are unique and early and, and high potential. And that was sort of, you know, I'm obviously late to the party in some ways with Denver, but that is how I saw it relative to other parts of the country. As an analogy, you know, it's a bit like an earlier stage version of Austin with, uh, with better weather and more to do and much more convenient in terms of travel and time zones. And, and a big one is just like ease of daily life. And it's, uh, you know, you really appreciate that coming from California. And I, I think the, the part that I didn't appreciate that I've come to appreciate now and I'm here is uh, it really is a nice community and it's very welcoming and very friendly and, and very down to earth. And, you know, we had to kind of relearn some habits. We came here, we had a lot of neighbors coming over knocking on our doors to welcome us. And we're like, what do they want from us? Let's go. What's wrong? What's happening here? But, uh, but it's, but it's very genuine. It's a great place to, to raise kids and good, good tech scene, good VC scene now, and, and a pretty interesting crypto scene too. Yeah, Scott, I'll agree with all those. As someone who moved from the Bay Area at the end of 2019, I, I completely agree with all that sentiment. The one thing I, I will challenge you a bit on and correct you on, though, is for the past few years, there have been more deals done and more dollars invested in Denver than in Austin. So, you know, I, oh, I think good. We're, 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 we're at or ahead of, of where they are um, from an from right. ecosystem perspective. So, it's my new, my new talking point. Well, we don't exactly. have South by Southwest yet. <laughs> <laughs> Although we had East Denver, pretty good one. We definitely saw the uh, the Dogecoin um, Lambo drive around town. <laughs> one in every city, I think. Exactly. Uh, so, so Scott, I don't know if, if you at Bitcraft have any investments locally, but we'd love to know: is there you know any companies locally you're particularly excited about, and, and anything you're seeing locally from an investment perspective that gets you excited? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say you know my world is obviously very very games oriented and very crypto oriented, and between those two things, uh, there's definitely more action here on the crypto side relative to, to the game side. So um, I'll, I'll cheat a little bit. There, there's a company called IMVU, which uh, has been around for a little while. It's this very iconic avatar-based mobile social network. It's, it's really a, bi a big, successful product. You know, it's like a mobile metaverse to be buzzwordy and, you know, million daily users, huge installed base, 40 million virtual goods on the platform, very kind of vibrant UGC ecosystem. So they are, you know, very successful in a web two world. And they've made the strategic decision to infuse that ecosystem with some token elements and web three and to kind of reorganize the economy around that and to build out a set of um, tools and tech to enable 
other virtual worlds to embrace Web3. And it turns out that their crypto leadership team is actually based here in, uh, in Boulder. And they're building out a kind of dedicated business around this called uh, MetaJuice. And we actually invested in their first private token presale. Um, so, you know, we're not doing just straight equity investments, but also token investments. And that's a really exciting one for us because in crypto, it's very rare that you find these kind of mature projects with big communities and businesses that are working that are, that are kind of taking this plunge. And that's, um, that's what these guys are doing. And it's a, it's a great kind of asset base to start from and build something distinctive in crypto. Well, Scott, I'd love to jump into the reason we're here to learn about your biggest lesson. So I imagine over your career, you've had a bunch of different types of roles, operator, investor, and seen a whole scope of different businesses. Uh, would love to hear what your biggest lesson is that you've learned over your career to date and how you learned it and how you put it to work today. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I have to credit you guys for asking a question like this, right? Like there was, as I sat down to think about this, I was like, I don't think I have anything interesting to say. And I'm just going to like get so fast into the zone of, of platitudes. Like, how am I going to, but, but, but I said, okay, I'm not going to give up. I'll keep thinking. So I, I'm going to share a lesson for you. I don't consider it super profound, but I do think it's hopefully super useful. And there's a couple layers to this. So, so bear with me. And it's, and it's really focused on your strengths. And it's important to note that I'm saying strengths, plural, uh, more on that later. But the distinction I'm making is, is that versus worrying so much about your gaps, right? And it's, it's, it's such a simple shift in mindset, but it really does move the dial on return on effort for personal growth. And kind of the reason I'm saying this, like, I think we're living in a cultural moment and a professional moment where differentiation is more important than ever, right? Like life is really about having spikes and being different. You know, it's not about getting better against 15 categories on a checklist. And we were all probably raised to some extent to be well-rounded. I think that's sort of the default pattern for where a lot of us come from. And that's, that's very useful to a point. But I think now we need to approach uh, success a little bit differently. And kind of the, the nuance to this, which I think is most powerful, is to be to focus on being good at more than one thing. There's there's a great a great insight from Scott Ad Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. So you know he, he's he's the source of this for me in some ways. Like he says, if you want an extraordinary life, you really have two paths, right? And that's to become the best at one specific thing, which is frankly difficult to the point of almost being impossible, right? There's only one Bob Dylan. There's only one Steph Curry. It's very hard to like take your shot at a strategy like that. Or you can become very good, like top 25% at two or more things. And that's actually pretty easy. Everyone has at least a few areas where they could be top 25% with some reasonable degree of effort, right? And in his case, you know, he can draw better than most people, but he's not an amazing artist. He's, he's funny, but he's not Eddie Murphy, but he can do both. He can draw and tell jokes. And compared to other cartoonists, like he understands business. And so all of a sudden, like the guy is totally unique just by combining some good but not great attributes, right? He can draw a case pretty funny, gets business. All of a sudden, he's got this like culturally defining media property. <clears throat> and I think that's a great lesson for me. Like make yourself rare by combining some pretty goods that don't often go together. And I think we see this 
all around us, right? Like a strong engineer who can sell or has a big vision. Who's that? Elon Musk, a, a decent artist with a nose for business. Jimmy Buffett, good salesman with a strong sense for design and culture and taste. Who's that? That's Steve Jobs, right? These are <clears throat> once in a lifetime people who are just combining a couple of solid skills that often do go together. And, you know, do we really wish that these people had spent more time on their development needs, right? Like if only Steve Jobs were better at making work plans at the start of product development, right? That's just not where the return on effort is. Uh, and so that that's guided me a lot. And it's, and it's sort of forced me to be self-aware about where my own strengths are and, and sort of what abilities and attributes that I, that I invest in for myself. So Scott, you know, just reflecting back on, on my career and also, you know, now reflecting back on, on feedback and performance reviews I've written, you know, probably an equal amount of space and time, right, in, in those performance plans were on weaknesses, right, as opposed to doubling totally. down on your strengths. And I have to imagine that the majority of folks have, have managers that are doing what I did and giving just as much feedback on areas for development, right? Um, how would you coach people to maybe, you know, push back or, or put the right amount of focus on that and then really double down on the few strengths they, they've had. Because I think your advice runs counter to a lot of feedback people get today in the work environment. 100%. You know, I, I had the exact same experience, right? And like, uh, not, not to spend too much time on McKinsey, but like they put you through these never-ending feedback sessions, 360 feedback. It was like a 30-point checkup inspection of a car, you know, across all these areas and 30 dimensions. And, you know, the, you come out with some input on where you're strong and where your spikes are, but you walk away from this feeling like, wow, I, I really need to work on a few things. And I, I wonder why they keep me here. You know, it's sort of a, a system uh, designed to keep highly capable people uh, insecure in some ways. And, and you get, you know, very conscious of these quote development needs and you put a lot of energy into moving the dial 10 points on something that gets you from like decent to better, but it's still not something that you can build a career or, you know, a source of value around. So I, I think it is a matter of like shifting criteria within these organizations and, you know, they just need to start spending as much time on uh, celebrating spikes as they do gaps. I, I think there's an element too of maybe stage of career where this is a bit more appropriate, you know, like kind of when you're younger in the journey, maybe you're still, you do need some certain foundational skills before you can really double down on, on specialization. It takes a little while to sort of surface these unique talents. So maybe some parsing around stage of life, I think would help that too. So Scott, thinking about spikes now and in your current role as an investor, are there a handful of spikes that you focus on identifying in founders when you look to invest and back them? Yes, I do. And I do look for two spikes, right? Like that is kind of a criteria for me. It's not that it has to be any two things, but I do look for the two things. One of them tends to be like, why are you uniquely suited to go after this thing? And oftentimes I do, uh, to the extent I do weight a common attribute often, it is on storytelling and selling. I think that is just essential, you know, whether to look, let's be honest, these guys have to keep the lights on and raise money. And if you can't do that, it's you're really fighting with one hand behind your back. And I think it's important to attract people and mobilize a team and obviously, you know, sell a vision. So I look for two. Storytelling is one of the key ones. But any other sort of, you know, 
deep skill, deep set of expertise on a corner of the world that other people aren't seeing. I like that combination. Scott, it's interesting. I mean, as you were talking about this, I had the same thought of if there's a difference in the amount of spikiness you need to see for a founder, right? As you're thinking about being an investor versus an executive as companies are hiring. Do you think about those two, those two seats differently? That's a great question. You know, I, I would say you probably as a, as a leader of a more mature organization, you know, you either just need to be maybe a little bit more multifunctional or at least humble enough to see your own gaps to kind of backfill with a team around you. I think in the case of a startup with a founder, you often don't have that luxury, right? It's a, it's a small crew for a long period of time. Um, you need to be a little bit of a jack of all trades, but I think it's really whether those two spikes are going to be enough to kind of carry the day to get you through, get you through those first, you know, two, three years where you have the luxury of a little bit more scale and team support around you. And that's an interesting point you just made around being aware of, of, of your gaps. How do you think about that or how do you coach founders, right? You've identified somebody that you think is spiky and Chris and I look for the same, same dynamic, of course. How do you make sure that they're at least somewhat aware of their gaps such that, you know, they can run a, a growing and scaling enterprise? Yeah. I mean, I, I try to practice what I'm preaching a little bit, to be honest. Like, I think the ability, I think you can embrace your gaps a little more easily if you, if you first see your strengths, right? And I, I can't tell you how many times I have people come to me kind of looking for career advice and they're, and these are not, only founders, it's a range of people, but they're, they're very worried that they just don't know what they're good at. They don't know if they're best in class at anything. And just trying to help people to see their own spikes is incredibly empowering because oftentimes they don't even realize where their, where their own talents lie. And if you kind of share this counsel, like, look, just, just be good at two things. All of a sudden it's like, wow. Okay. Now I can be great as a person just by being good at a couple things. That becomes um, very empowering because they sort of see a path for themselves, areas where they can sort of not just stand out and be effective, but start to, you know, for lack of a better word, build their own vibe. You know, they can start to define themselves and sort of see how they're going to present themselves to the world. And when you when you do that, I think it gives you just a more confident footing. You can feel more at ease about where. You're not so great at things, you know, and you can be like, okay, good. Look, these are not my, these are not my strong suits. These are things I need to backfill around. And it's, and it's less sort of like a judgment on, hmm, hey, Mr. Founder, like you're really kind of missing the mark on A, B, or C. And Scott, on, on that point, um, I think it is, you know, founders that can do that. And when they do that, I think start to build not just a great product, but start to build a great company and a great team to go after the opportunity. Um, in my experience, I've sometimes encountered, though, founders being reluctant to admit that they have gaps, right? Because I think that that there is often this um, both both ego and what they presented is, no, I can go do this thing on my own type of thing, right? Which is the type of people that more often than not end up being founders, right? Um, how have you been able to, you know, coach or help founders admit that there are gaps that they need to go fill with other people as opposed to, doing it themselves or brushing over, over that it's not important. I think there's, for, for me, what's worked is, is two things. Like one is, you know, the great, the great gift of, of being a, a venture investor, I think um, 
at the middle phase of your life is it gives you these incredibly intense journeys to take with really talented and unique people, right? And one of the hard parts about this phase of life is like, how many, how many new like super tight friends are you making when you're 40, right? You, you, still, you only get so deep, you know, going to dinner every two months with, you know, one of your, one of your kids' parents, right? Whereas when you take these roads as a, as a seed investor, especially if you're leading uh, and you go on these journeys with founders for seven, 10 years, you, uh, it's like going to war, you know, not to be tried about it, but you go through some really hard things together, some ups and some downs. It doesn't, I think if you approach that early with genuineness and empathy and humility and trying to be sort of a resource for the founder, not a know-it-all for the founder, you can, um, you can build some trust pretty quickly. And when you have that trust, I think it, you know, it allows you to come from a place, not of judgment, but of, you know, being on the same side, trying to make a successful outcome for, for an enterprise. So that, that helps. I think the other one is to, to encourage founders to see their own gaps as opportunity for teams, right? Like this is, this is a very healthy dynamic on my end, right? It's like if I surround myself with people who are stronger than me technically, who are deeper than me on crypto, who are better at marketing, they have a better touch for certain types of users, demographics or culture. Um, that makes for a great dynamic where my colleagues can bring so much value to stuff that we're working on together and they feel better about it. You know, it gives them some space to shine and to have their own uh, domain. And I think framing your own things is an opportunity to give space for your team to thrive and feel great and feel loyal and feel empowered, I think is also a good way. Scott, this was great. Fantastic lesson. Really, really appreciate time and appreciate you being an active part of the ecosystem. Where can, uh, where can our listeners follow along with what you guys are up to at, at Bitcraft? Thanks. Uh, yeah, Bitcraft.dc. We're on, uh, we're on Twitter. You can find us there. We, we're fairly active on LinkedIn side and we're kind of increasingly putting out content on our website and we've got some colleagues who do podcasts as well. If you want to go down the, the metaverse rabbit hole, there's, there's a lot waiting for you. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. 